Hello and welcome to the Journey Further podcast, a show where we help you learn from the people and businesses on a mission to do things differently. Today's guest is Lucy Jameson, founder of Uncommon. Many would probably describe them as an ad agency. They call themselves a creative studio. But whichever way you cut it, since founding in 2017, they've done some of the most standout work in British advertising. Their accounts include Brewdog, Chili's, ITV and many more. This kind of rapid success doesn't happen by chance though. I ask Lucy about the founding principles of the agency, how they decide which briefs to take and which to leave, the frustrations which she suffered in her previous role as CEO of Grey London. We chat about a lot of the work I just mentioned, including the agency's relationship with Brewdog founder James Watt and also Uncommon's ambition to create brands and products themselves. It turns out Lucy is a bit of a bookworm too, so listen right to the end for some great recommendations on that front. If you like the episode, please share it with a friend or colleague and leave a rating or a review in your podcast app. Here goes. Lucy, thank you so much for for joining me on the podcast. Thanks very much for inviting me. We'll kick things off as we do with every discussion, by asking you the question, what's the wrong you want to write? So um, this one's actually quite an easy one for us. Um, You know, when we were thinking about starting, we were looking at, you know, what was going on in terms of brands. And it's really clear that people wouldn't care if three quarters of brands disappeared tomorrow. And people are paying really good money to avoid advertising, which is one of the things I spend my life making. So that gave us a really clear kind of, um, you know, wrong to right. We knew we wanted to build brands that actually people cared about and to do that in a way which people loved rather than hated. Um, And to make, you know, advertising that didn't necessarily look like advertising any longer. I mean, it's extraordinary, really, isn't it? There aren't many other industries that people actually pay to avoid. And ours is one of those. And so we wanted to turn that around, I guess. That's really interesting. And yeah, I guess there's so much to dig into here. I guess, I guess firstly, how, how do you define a brand that, that, that people really actually wish existed? How, what, what constitutes a brand of that kind? Well, I think, I mean, there's lots of metrics you can look at, um, but the simplest ones are probably questions like, would you care if this one disappeared or not? Um, and I think, you know, increasingly people expect that brands deliver on, you know, what they're supposed to do from a functional point of view. They're actually useful in some kind of way or delightful in some kind of a way. But increasingly, I think everyone also thinks they need to um, somehow leave the world a better place or have some kind of positive purpose. You can see in the data that that has changed radically over the last sort of 10 years, I guess. And it's particularly true amongst younger younger consumers but you know it's sort of up there at sort of 60 70 percent for everyone now so I think um, I think it's taking brands a while to catch up to that and it's probably a lot harder for some legacy brands to really kind of need to make the shifts that that requires. Hmm. Yeah because I I was reflecting on that the thing which you say around the real world that brand, yeah. um, brand people sit in the real world and what are the different angles there are you talking about the, the real world as in acknowledging the challenges that face us on the planet or the real world versus 
like what a marketer thinks versus what the actual yeah consumer uh, thinks or? both of those i think we do tend to look and uh, live in a bubble um bbh labs did some work recently that looked at kind of different groups how similar were different groups you know in terms of what they thought about things and actually um, most groups aren't that similar uh, but when you look at advertising and marketing people, we do all tend to think the same sort of things. And that's quite different from what everybody else thinks in the real world. So we did actually want to make work and to make brands that people in the real world care about, not just that we in our small little bubble get high over. Um, so, yeah, that was definitely that. And I think we do look when we're talking about you know, whether we should work with somebody or not, whether we're excited about a project or not, we absolutely think about could that brand at least kind of have, I guess, a net positive impact. Um, so, you know, accepting that it's complicated when you're talking about brands and consumption, but overall, do we think it's a good thing that they exist or not? And when it comes to Uncommon then and, and speaking about this mission, was there a moment when you when you thought, when that light bulb went on and you thought, actually, I'd, I want to try and tackle this. I want to try and make a change here, draw a line in the sand and, and, and start a new thing and go on a different course with this, with, with Uncommon? I think it was a sort of dawning realisation before uh, the three of us set up Uncommon. We ran a large WPP agency. At the time, it was grey. It was around 550 people. And I think we just, there were three things I think that I felt needed to change. One, I found ourselves working on clients that just didn't really like, uh, didn't feel like they had a good culture or were genuinely, uh, you know, there to make things better. And it gets quite, I think it gets quite tiring when you're working on making those brands successful. And so I felt like I wanted personally to have more choice, but also I just felt like, you know, I've been around in the business long enough that I actually want my work to have a better impact on the world. So that was one thing. Second thing was uh, we'd done something called Volvo Life Paint, which uh, instead of making an ad for Volvo about safety, we made this paint um, which you sprayed onto bicycles or stuff like that, which was designed to improve cycle safety. Um, and it had taken us a long time to get that off the ground. And it had also taken us quite a lot of battles for WPP to accept that we would get paid via some pounds on the cost of those cans rather than taking a fee. Um, and it just struck me anyhow that, you know, we were in the safe bit of WPP. We were there to be a kind of cash cow. We were not there to experiment or to innovate. Uh, we were there to provide safe returns. And I kind of wanted to be able to try new things, see if we could experiment and do things better and differently. And that wasn't really wanted from us. And I guess the third and final thing was, you know, agencies are only collections of people. And um, really, you know, you're ability to create great work is down to whether you've got your unfair share of talent and whether you create an environment that gets out of the way and lets them do the best they can. And I felt like we were not as in control of our culture as we wanted to be when it come to, came to the big things like paying people more or less or getting rid of them or, you know, giving them new opportunities or that sort of stuff was, was hard to do within a big global structure. 
No, that makes sense. So I guess what when you when you started with that blank slate, what what, what were the things which straight away you were like, okay, I've got a big opportunity here. That these are the foundations which I need to lay immediately. Well, I mean, honestly, we were lucky in some ways. We had a year out. We were forced to take a year out. Um, and in some ways, that was great because it made us look at the industry differently. Um, with the benefit of a year away, you kind of see things a bit more clearly. And I spent time uh, at Facebook. I spent time mentoring for an accelerate, accelerator program for startups. Uh, I worked in media for a bit. I wasn't allowed to work in the industry. So I yeah. got a chance that I never normally have to try some different things. And that was brilliant. And it did certainly make me think, you know, like the startup world is one where yeah, it's full of founders who either have a financial or a technical background, not that mm. many who have brand background. And when you're around that space, you kind of realize brand is sort of bottom of the bottom of the pyramid very often. So that was interesting. It struck me that there was more opportunity to, if you built brands that mattered from the start, they could accelerate further and faster. Um, so we, I think, had a lot of time <laughs> to really think yeah. about what we wanted to do. And one of those things was that not only did we want to build brands for clients, we also wanted to have a go at building some ourselves. Um, and certainly in, in our year off, Nil started a coffee company, which was Halo.coffee, which was um, fully compostable, you know, alternatives to Nespresso capsules. And again, that kind of dances straight away on attention that, you know, millions of Nespresso capsules go into landfill every minute. Um, so really, there needed to be a kind of solution to that. And I think we started to realize that if you can place a brand on attention like that, then you don't necessarily need the same level of kind of traditional advertising and stuff like that you're going to get word of mouth and energy and friction and heat because that's already around the problem. Mm. So, so I think it made us think quite hard about, you know, who our first clients were going to be and were they true to that or not. And we were very lucky with our first client. Um, it was Ovo. Um, they gave us a slightly weird brief, but fundamentally they were interesting because they had um, a renewable energy tariff and this was going back sort of three years now, and their standard energy had a way higher proportion of renewable energy in, in their standard tariff. And so we did a campaign about getting people to switch to renewable. And for us, that was bang on because it was the right thing to do. It was a sustainable brand, a brand people should really want to welcome in and um, a challenger brand. And we did some famous work for them. So it was kind of right in that sweet spot for us. Mm. And I think that was, you know, incredibly lucky. Most agencies start with an old client of theirs, um, you know, so it's very unusual, you know, to take a year out and uh, start with a blank sheet of paper and not have a client. Um, terrifying, <laughs> <laughs> but it did give us the benefit of kind of going, this is exactly what we want to go after. Yeah, I, 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 I can understand. And you kind of alluded to it there as well in terms of creating brands and creating products, not just doing the advertising or the communications. Why is that something that's so important to Uncommon? And I, and I guess that plays out in your in the full name of the agency as well, Uncommon Creative, Creative Studio, Studio rather than... Yeah. 
Um, two two things. Um, I think we always have liked making, so we wanted to be a studio that actually made things rather than just uh, you know had a nice idea and got somebody else to make it for us. Because I think you actually get better by making stuff. Um, so that felt like that was really important. It was fun to be around and fun to do as well. And then I think we sort of thought, well, God, we've spent years advising people. Um, surely we should give this a go ourselves and A, understand what they're going through and B, be able to kind of, when you're having a chat with a client, you can look them in the eye and go, God, well, if I was in your shoes, which I have been in other occasions, this is what I'd do. And it would carry more weight, I think, because you've been sat on a mound of coffee in Trieste and gone, shit, we've got to sort this out, rather than just worrying about the nice, pretty pictures um, mm. of the advertising. So it felt to us like it, it was just something we wanted to have a go at. And we also wanted to be able to kind of let our people have a go at stuff if they wanted to as well. So, you know, um, we did a thing over lockdown, which was called Sense of Normality, which were like candles that smelt of the stuff you missed. So the pub, i.e. the local, the cinema, the festival. And yeah, I, lo- I love this campaign. Yeah. <laughs> and they were, um, you know, the money from that went to the Hospitality Trust, which is, uh, you know, supported people who've been out of work from the hospitality industry of which there were a lot um so it felt like a a really good thing and that came through one of our creative teams having that idea um and we really just want to be able to create an environment where if people have good ideas we'll back them and we'll help them figure out a way to make them happen yeah and i i guess i wanted to ask you personally as well then like what what do you most like getting stuck into at at an at uncommon on a on a on a day-to-day basis what what really excites you when it when it lands in your uh in your in your inbox or your to-do list i mean i i'm a strategist by background so i love getting my head around a new sector and trying to figure out how people tick why they do what they do and you know, why could they do this thing differently or better or whatever? So I, I love that side of it. I love the upfront trying to kind of figure out what we could do with a, a brand or a business or where there's an opportunity. I mean, we've found that bit of it hard, if I'm really honest. There have been a couple of things where, you know, I've spent two or three months trying to figure out, you know, how we could do a particular business and could we do it or not. Definitely spotted an opportunity, but trying to actually assemble the right crew of talent without it kind of taking too much time and distracting from everything else. That bit of it is really, really hard. Mm. Um, But that bit of it is super exciting as well. And I think we've learned a lot about where are the places we can play and who do we need to find partners to do stuff with. Whereas, you know, if you're going to try and do it from scratch all on your own, it's too all-encompassing if you're running another business as well. So, so you know, I think it's sort of, um, I think it's that upfront bit of getting excited about what the potential of a sector is and what the potential of a brand is. Yeah, definitely. And I guess you spoke there a little bit about, yeah, forming the right teams to work on, on, on projects. How have you approached the the, the challenge of, of, of talent and common? And I know it's something which you and the founders spoke about quite a lot when 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 you launched that you wanted to create a different relationship with 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 talent. Mm. How's that how's that kind of worked out and what have you learned 
in the process? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we set out with this thing called the uncontract. We'd been so burnt, obviously, by our, by our legal dealings with our, our previous owners that we wanted to create a fairer kind of setup with our talent. Um, and we wanted our talent as well to be able to work the way they wanted to work as well and to have more flexibility. And we also set up, you know, what we call Uncommon Mind, so a network of people we collaborate with all around the world from a strategy point of view. And our view was that you don't, you know, you don't need a big, heavy team all the time. You need to be able to assemble the right crew, probably the smallest crew you can manage with, to be honest, because mm. smaller is generally better, and then scale it up or down according to different bits of the process. And just having a much more fluid approach to it. And our take is that if you've got great problems, they attract really good people. So for us, it's really important that we work with brilliant clients who want to do something interesting, because that's when you're going to attract the best people. And then honestly, you know, getting out the way and letting our talent do what they do, mm. uh, rather than sort of having loads of layers and bureaucracy, we're very fast and flat and fluid. Hey there, Nathan here. If you're enjoying the show so far, I'd recommend you join the Journey Further Book Club. This is our learning community designed for time-pressured marketers, where we share bite-sized insight from the best business books, all aimed at helping you become better at your job. It's completely free to join. Just head to journeyfurther.com to sign up or click the link in the show notes. Now back to Lucy. I guess I wanted to ask you a little bit about the clients that you work with then. It's quite like a, it's quite an impressive roster now, and I I, I imagine that as you, as you kind of alluded to before, as as you guys started to make a name for yourself as the kind of new kids on the block, so to speak, I imagine you probably had quite a few clients coming to you who wanted to work with you because you were the you were the, the yeah the new the new people around the cool the cool agents on the scene, but maybe they didn't have a brief which aligned with the type of work and the type of brands that you want to yeah. um, collaborate with. Yeah, there were lots of both. <laughs> I mean, lots of people who, who did come to us because not only had they heard we were like new and exciting, they'd actually read that we wanted to do stuff that, you know, would make a difference in the world. So, uh, you know, that's the good thing. PR and story and all of that works. We did attract a disproportionate number of clients who not only just were interested because we were new, but also shared our values. But yeah, we met a lot of people who you know, through the process, it's always hard to tell. You, we'll have a meeting with anyone and we'll get to the bottom of, you know, is this a brand that we think could have that potential? So we don't do that thing of, oh, no, they're not a cool brand. They don't deserve to exist straight away. Pretty much our view is any brand can be turned around to be that. It's whether or not the team and the clients and us all share that vision that it could be. I mean, you'd have looked at ITV and not have gone, that's the most sexy, exciting brand. But they're an amazing team, an amazing bunch of people, and they wanted to do something, you know, more meaningful. And that is what we've done with Britain Get Talking. So so I think we had a lot of those conversations. Sometimes you can tell after the first meeting. Sometimes you really can't tell until you get into a room and share work. And that is for us, that kind of first tissue meeting where we're sharing our first ideas. That's quite a big meeting. And sometimes 
we will just call it a day after that meeting and go, nah, we're not aligned on where we think this could go. And it's not in a hissy fit way. It's just in a, we just don't share the same vision of, of the world. Um, and that's fair enough too. Uh, you'd probably be better served by somebody else who, who thinks the way you do. And and have have you had to make any sort of adaptions to either the the creative process or perhaps the pitch process to 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 align to your new way of working or have the fundamentals of those things kind of stayed stayed the same? Um, we wrote ourselves an operating system, uh, you know, so that we had a kind of view of how do you define those kind of brands um, and we thought quite hard about the process of getting there. So we did do some of that. I don't think it's like rocket science stuff. It's just defining brands that kind of operate on those tensions, um, you know, where there's a real problem to solve and that's what we're looking for. Um, and then I think, honestly, I think we're just much straighter with our clients. Uh, it's, it's not, you know, we squirrel away and do a big reveal it's very much right. This is what we're thinking. What do you reckon? Um, and a much more open conversation about that. And I think we work fast on the basis that, you know, we want to know fast if this is going somewhere or not. Um, so we'd much prefer to kind of turn around ideas quite fast and then make them quite fast as well. Um, my husband's a creative and over the years, I look at the amount of work he's produced, which has never seen the light of day. And that just feels like such a massive waste of creativity and energy. And we wanted to have a process where we would, you know, get on with it and make work quicker. I can remember, you know, in previous lives where you'd be two years before you made even one 30 second ad. And that just seemed wrong to us. And so much kind of faff. Um, so we set up something called Faf Tax, um, which was we really didn't want to do the dance. We actually want to come to you with some quick ideas and then get on and make some of those. And if they don't work, then we can change them and off we go. But we have a bias towards making rather than talking. That's interesting. My my flatmate until until recently works at a uh, one of the big ad agencies. And yeah, and that's the perspective I often get from speaking to him. He'll be getting really excited about, about a project, about a campaign or something, and he'll be working on it solidly for weeks maybe. And then it sometimes he's just like, oh no, it's, the client doesn't like it or no, a different route. Downbeaten, downtrodden. Yeah. Got to try and get your mojo back. It must be demoralizing. Yeah, really. And And I like to think that our teams have a higher hit rate of getting work out. Mm. uncommon than they would at other places and that we love it's fun it's it gives you energy and excitement and people are proud of what they've done and that has its own kind of momentum so we definitely have that bias yeah and I guess just thinking about the work again it, it feels to me when I look through lots of the stuff you've produced over the last couple of years that there's a there's a sort of style running through a lot of it how, how do you go about crafting that kind of style? It's like when I when I see a lot of the ads, the, the feeling I often get is, all, oh, that's not quite what I'd, ex- what, what I'd expect from that brand. It's not quite what I was expecting, but it's really fantastic. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, well, we, we do actually try very hard not to have a house style. <laughs> you know, whether it is a brand like The Guardian and Hope is Power, which feels very different in tone to 
I don't know, a scale up like a Habito, which is a fintech, which is super disruptive and hello Habito. But I think we are really conscious that everything we do has to be famous. Um, and so everything we do has to mess with you in some way. Um, otherwise, you know, as we know, most of it is wallpaper otherwise. Um, and the other thing we like to do is, is uh, as I said, to kind of make experiences. So whether that is, um, you know, for ITB, Britain Get Talking, that wasn't really advertising. It was disrupting one of their big programs or whether for Ecova, we've made everything from a baby fragrance to um, the thing we did over the summer, which was a Fertilise the Future fund, which was a fund that they were going to use um, from the additional profits they got over coronavirus. Didn't sit very well with them. So they decided to turn that into a fund um, to fund brilliant, green, sustainable ideas, which is amazing. So sort of it could be anything from, you know, making a hairdryer out of Piers Morgan's head um, through to, you know, asking Brewdog to do hand sanitizers over, over coronavirus. I don't, I think we just always want it to be disruptive, always want it to be surprising, always want it to be famous, but famous for a reason. Yeah. And I think you obviously mentioned Brewdog there and I kind of, I have to, ask you a bit about that I think like looking back over this year that they'd probably be the brand which was sort of top of people's list if they asked were asked to disname a sort of disruptive marketing voice um how is it working with 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 that with that business who probably who probably push you guys to your limits of 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 what of what you can uh of, of what you can think about and what you can what you can deliver yeah so this one um Nils has a very direct relationship with James Watt. Um, we did their first TV ad, uh, and he's famously said he never wanted to do TV advertising, um, but literally it was kind of just advert um, with incredibly noisy music and worked phenomenally well. Um, through to now, we have a very much an open brief on that brand. So across the whole agency, if you see something that you think they could or should be doing, uh, we'll take that to James Watt and he'll either go, yep, excellent, I'll, I want to do that and off we go and make it, or he doesn't. Um, and he is, you know, phenomenally smart at wiring things around fame. I think he kind of does think about it, is this going to make a good tweet? <laughs> um, uh, but what was amazing about, you know, literally one of the teams uh, had the idea of really they should be turning their distilleries into making hand sanitizer. Nils texted James on, I think, a Friday with a picture they'd mocked up and some stuff. Um, and by the Monday, he'd flipped the factory to be, you know, the distillery to be actually making hand sanitizer. And what's amazing was that, you know, they got it wrong first. It didn't have a high, high enough proportion of alcohol and everyone went, oh, Brewdog aren't doing it right. No, 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 typical, just a marketing stunt. And he went away and tried again and got it to the right standard. Um, so, you know, I think that's a kind of brilliant example of somebody just being super determined and will keep on going. Um, and, you know, I think he has, with all the work he's done around sustainability, he's kind of shown there's, there are different ways of building a brand. And I think that's powerful. No, that, that That's interesting to hear that obviously, yeah, he, he is such a, a 
incredibly strong voice attached to the business but it's not just a it's not just a, a, a business persona it's clearly he is involved very much in the day-to-day decision making on stuff like this yeah 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 definitely <laughs> yeah there's no kind of layers of hierarchy and kind of all of that which again is is brilliant um and it's a really interesting different way to run a business mm. i guess that 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 leads me on a little bit i guess to to ask you about the in-house creative capabilities of of of, of businesses as a whole and obviously over the past few years, there's been lots of talk about in-housing, how you might in-house your media buying or your digital marketing, whatever that is. What what's your take on that from a from a from a creative perspective? Are you seeing any brands do a really good job at that? Are you seeing it as something which is a still quite a long way off as being normalised? Or I think it's a fairly consistent theme. Lots of our clients have in-house capability whether that be ITV, have ITV Creative or, you know, lots and lots of our clients do have some capabilities. But I think there is a massive value in having an outside perspective um, and being able to see the world like other people do uh, when you get sucked into a culture and you're immersed in it the whole time. It inevitably warps how you think and feel about a brand. And I think that freshness and the outside, you know, opinion is massively valuable. So we often see brands who have in-housing for a lot of their capability, but it doesn't mean that they necessarily have that inspiration to do the kind of big shifts. I think it's quite often very hard to see where you could take a brand when you're down in, in the kind of trenches working on it every day. So we've found that is usually really collaborative relationship and often really productive where it just means we'll come in, give a kind of spur of energy, inspiration, show different places you could go, but then there's sort of other people to help to kind of take it right through the system. So we don't mind working that way. It's really, you know, about what's going to work for the client. Um, I think it's rare that you see great creative coming out of in-house creative teams maybe apples one of the few exceptions um but you know i can't really think of anyone much else who's done really great creative with an in-house team as you say you talk about that tension and playing on that tension it's hard to get to that point when you're on the inside rather than when you can prod and poke from the from the outside yeah, that's exactly it. So I, I think the trend will continue. I think it's important clients have their own data and some capability, but we don't see that as a threat. It's it's just a mm. different game to what we do, really. And and when it comes to the, the the media side of it, then obviously, yeah, you guys are really pursuing this this path of creating famous work, which has a real purpose and for purposeful brands. Um, what's what's your perspective on how you how, how brands then need to get the cut through with this with this new journey that you're taking them on um well we often work with craft media um who are brilliant media consultancy they have um, desks in our building and we love working with them because they plan effectively for attention they don't believe in just buying reach they want mm. to make sure that whatever we do has attention um, and that, I think, leads to a very different way of thinking about it. When we did um, Collusion, which was a Gen Z fashion brand we built with ASOS, we um, 
you know, we realised there was an opportunity to do something quite different in that sector. And they were obsessed about representation and felt that the you know fashion industry did not represent them properly. So we worked with six Gen Z influencers and built the brand. And we created a portrait of 100 people turning 18 and okay. played that out across social um, and across posters. And Sal just did this thing where she literally went up to Birmingham and Manchester and sat and went to the student campuses and literally took the bus from there to the coolest places to go out and went, I want the poster there, 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 there along (laughs) that journey. And so bought the most incredible plan of really bespoke, you know, really well thought through media, which made a massive, massive difference and worked incredibly hard rather than just buying a kind of, you know, here's whatever national campaign of whatever the poster companies gave us. So I think that kind of really smart approach to media um, is really important for what we do, actually. That's interesting. And I guess that that speaks back to what you were saying about being a being a studio, being a bit more of a, a, an overarching partner rather than just being the, the agency who delivers the, the great billboard or the great video and then steps back and says, OK, that's out in the world now. We'll see next next thing. It's a bit more of a, um, a rounded approach, I guess. Yeah. And we and we will, you know, we, I don't think we've ever done a pitch where we haven't kind of gone we think you should do this with the brand or the identity or here's an opportunity for, you know, where you might develop it from a new product point of view, all of those sort of things we like to be involved with. And, you know, like brands like Habito, for sure, we started out doing their advertising. You know, they've now given us visual identity briefs. Uh, We've been talking about developing new products. You know, we build those sort of partnerships with, with our clients and we love that. I, I wanted to ask you um, a little bit again, sort of future gazing. Um, you obviously mentioned about your your background at, at Grey, and obviously in recent weeks there's been the the news about the merger of Grey with AKQA, or or the the other way around. Not, yeah. not, it's hard to hard to understand. Um, what what are the big forces you see impacting the advertising industry in in the coming years? What 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 should we really be paying attention to in terms of those big shifts? Oh, I mean, I think it's going to continue to have many, many problems. Uh, I don't think the holding company breeds model builds great creativity. I think it's there to build efficiency and certainty. And I don't think that necessarily sits fantastically well with with creativity. Um, I think you will continue to see, uh, you know, the whole issues around creating an ecosystem or a whole customer experience for brands. I think at the moment that's been almost all about the plumbing, getting the technology and plumbing right. But people have sort of forgotten there are humans in there. So the ability to be able to serve them 30 pointless emails that they all hate isn't really that useful. Um, I think we need to put humans back in the centre of that. We'd like to expand and think more about that too. I think... um, you know, we're interested, we're exploring whether or not to start up our own accelerator, which actually is designed to, to build brands that, you know, should exist in the world. So we're, we're, we're kind of experimenting with that. Um, there's lot, I mean, there's just lots of room, I think, because it's going to continue to be a time of change. Coronavirus obviously accelerated all the shift towards digital. 
it will mean massive job losses in our industry still. And that, I think, creates an environment of change. And we like that. (laughs) Um, That means there's opportunities and different ways to do things. Um, And that's exciting to us. I know it's quite terrifying to a lot of other people, but we think that's quite exciting. Yeah, I guess that there's more uncertainty in the in the short term, but the longer term outlook for 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 the way the industry is going for 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 companies like yours is is certainly is certainly strong. So, Lucy, I've I've got three more questions to to finish up on. The first one is, what did you used to believe that you no longer believe in? Well, I thought to be an entrepreneur, you had to be this sort of crazy. I don't know, Richard Branson type character. Um, and, I, and I thought there were, there were people who were entrepreneurs and they always had these larger than life kind of wacky kind of characteristics. And I, I no longer believe that. I think anyone can be a great entrepreneur if you've got a kind of vision and some drive, um, you know, for what you want to do and a real sense of purpose about that. I think that's more important. So that's probably one, one big shift, I think. And, and did, did that come about with the shift of you starting in common and suddenly being in that owner's seat, that entrepreneur's seat for the... Yeah, that and, and also working with a lot more entrepreneurs. So a lot of our clients, whether that is Habito, whether it's Bother, whether it's Chili's, whether it's, you know, Allbirds, a lot of them are more entrepreneur, more founder-led businesses. And I think we now see the kind of variety of founders and Mm. see that a lot of them are motivated by the problem they're there to solve, not, you know, I'm this crazy person. Um, They're motivated by solving something. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I guess the the, just the discourse which has happened around business and yeah and an aspirational or a cool thing to be that yeah. sort of startup founder or whatever it has kind of played into that and you say as you say it's not necessarily a helpful sort of dialogue around it yeah it's not it's a, there are lots of bad stereotypes i think in there but yeah i think it's brilliant and exciting that it is now a sexy thing i mean i started in the business in the in the early 90s and on, the just entrepreneur was not a thing it really wasn't Interesting. Secondly, Lucy, uh, if this wasn't your mission, helping bin, build brands that, that people really wish uh, existed, what, what would be? Um, I have always loved architecture as um, one of the things I always grew up really fascinated by. And I've loved kind of buildings. And I, I always thought it'd be really fascinating to try and make public buildings and affordable housing brilliant. Um, you know, where my daughter, my daughter goes to school quite near Grenfell and every morning I'd get on the tube at Labrook Grove and you could see Grenfell. And, you know, just after that, it really made me think about, you know, wow, the, the fact that we have housing like that in the UK is terrible. Mm. Um, but you can see it all through, um, you know, through since the kind of 1960s. Housing is such a kind of interesting area, but it's treated so badly. Mm, that's yeah really so there we go that would that would be my other one <laughs> yeah because yeah when as you say when you walk around like london you see like such diverse architecture it does make you think like when was that built and why why almost... and you can almost point to the houses that were built as council houses or affordable how ha- they're all shit 
they're really awful sorry to swear but <laughs> they okay. are really awful um and you just kind of think god there have to be better ways of, of doing it than that yeah definitely um and finally lucy if you could recommend one book for members of the journey further book club to read what would it be this has been impossible for me to think about because <laughs> i read all the time okay, and great. I love business books and I went through, should it be Rummel's good strategy, bad strategy? I mean, honestly, kind of been through a kind of massive journey. And I, this is a really random one, which is why I'm picking it, because it's probably not some, a book that anyone would ever think of reading. But the other thing I'm really interested in is history. I did a history degree and I um, went back and read some stuff about our industry and one of the books I thought was really interesting was a book um, called The Strategy of Desire by Ernest Dichter from the 1960s. Um, and he was, I guess, the kind of founder of what was called motivational research. But people might call him a bit of a kind of um, retail answer to Freud, if that makes sense. Right, okay. And I don't know if you've ever heard of um, The Hidden Persuaders by Vance Packard. But no, it was a book... Oh, it's a book that was a kind of, you know, scathing book about the industry, The Hidden Persuaders, which I read before I thought about coming into advertising. It was like, right. oh. Anyway, that book refers back to Ernest Dichter as one of the kind of, you know, hidden persuaders using their kind of magical Freudian thinking right, to kind yeah. of evil ends. So, yeah, I, I think that sort of stuff is really fascinating. Really interesting. Uh, well, no, I can, I can, uh, yeah, I can guarantee you those are two unique recommendations that we've had. We've not had either of those, either of those before. Um, and I guess that brings us to a nice close as well, because I think you're, you're, you're very, it's very clear now with it in common. You're doing the, the, the opposite of, of, of that. You're doing the opposite of the, the, the evil or the hidden persuader and, uh, and, and, and following a much more purposeful path. Yes. Very deliberately. I have a 10 year old and, uh, you know, she's got her head around advertising and thinks it's horrific, awful <laughs> already. And so, you know, I wanted to be able to look her in the eye and kind of go, yeah, we do good stuff, not not evil, horrible stuff. <laughs> uh, Lucy, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, learning a lot more about Un Uncommon. And uh, yeah, I, I look forward to seeing seeing all the work that's, that's still to come. Oh, thanks very much, Nathan. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to the very end. I hope that means you found that conversation as interesting as I did. I'd urge you to go and check out some of the work that we discussed. Uncommon really are at the top of their game. That just about wraps up season one. I'll be back next week to fill you in on plans for season two, which will start in the new year and will be even bigger and even better. For now, please just hit subscribe, sit tight, and you'll hear from me next week.